Hey, what is going, everyone? This is Zach. Thank you for checking out me and Tom Matheny's podcast, Rocking at the Jake. Before we start the show, I wanted to talk to you guys real quick about Thrive Fantasy. You might be asking yourself, what's Thrive Fantasy? Thrive Fantasy is a daily fantasy sports app for player props. Come prop up on Thrive Fantasy this season, where they've eliminated the need to do countless hours of research because they only ask you about the top-tier athletes in their respective sports. They got sports like NFL, NBA, MLB, PGA Esports, and more. And when you use our code ROCKIN20 when you sign up today, you will be able to get a $50 boost instant matchup with that when you use a minimum $20 deposit. So like I said, use ROCKIN20, R-O-C-K-I-N-20 right now when you sign up and Thrive Fancy will hook you up with a $50 instant deposit match, but you have to make sure to do that $20 minimum deposit when you do so. Download Thrive Fantasy on the App Store or the Google Play Store, or even by visiting their website at www.thrivefantasy.com. Sign up now, prop up today, and win some money with Thrive Fantasy. Hey, what is going on, everyone? Welcome to episode 18 of Rockin' of the Jake. I'm your host, Zach Martin. Always with me tonight is my co-host, none other than Tom Matheny. Tom, how's your weekend been, man? Uh, it's good. Um, I'm down outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. Been working for some family friends uh, on their Etsy shop, and it's been uh, it's been a good time cutting a Cutting a lot of boards down, doing a lot of sanding. I do have I do have a question about your intro though. I you make it sound like you have other co-hosts that you have dalliances with other than me, man. What's going on with this? <laughs> I don't know, man. I just want to try a little something different tonight, but you know, obviously you're the only co-host I really have besides our guest that we have. So Are you just, just trying to just trying to spice things up behind the microphone. Yeah, why not? You know, don't don't want to make it a little boring here in the middle of December when you have virtual winter meetings and you really have like no real huge, you know, free agent moves other than like you know James McCann to the Mets or you know Lance Lingen trades to the White Sox or Carlos Santana to the Royals. So that's you know, not that's, a major free agent signing. Well, uh, you know what I mean. You know, got spice it up a little bit. <laughs> it doesn't get too boring with you know. Because let's be honest, the MLB off season is. Pretty lackluster for the first like couple months until you hit like January and February. So for the first to, you know, most try to live and, Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but how's it how's it going down there today? See, I know you said you're working with the Epsi shop. How's that how's oh, that been going? Oh dude, it's first off the weather is gorgeous. Um it's fantastic oh, course, down here. It's, it's like sixty degrees every day. Sun comes out every day. It's awesome. Hey, that's not too bad, yeah. I've had a, an interesting weekend myself. I actually, 
I actually got hurt in my job on Thursday while one of our steel ramps from our trucks fell on my foot and uh, pretty much busted my foot up. So I'm in a walking boot for the next two weeks. Ooh, OSHA so and Workman's fun. Comp come together to make Zach. Love to see it. Well, not, well, not OSHA because I'm in South Carolina, but luckily my job has uh, – desk stuff I can do so I can still go into work and uh, still get a better paycheck than I would have gotten for workman's cop. So some silver linings, at least I'll still be making some good money. So dude, OSHA is national not legislation. Oh, not dude. the Ohio high school athletic association. I'm talking. Yeah. 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 I know. Yeah. I know. Dude, I've, I've never had to get workman's cop before. So that's, it's, this is a whole new situation for me, but all right, let's but introduce our that. guest for the week. Yeah, for sure. I know he's probably waiting on the other line going, damn, these guys are taking forever. When, when am I going to say something? Would they just we do have a special... shut up? I know. My gosh. That's that guy. <laughs> but we do have our... <sighs> you know, I, I, feel, I feel bad for my wife sometimes. She's like, am I ever going to get a word in edgewise? No. Well, you know what? Just accept it. <laughs> it's 40 more years no. of this. Yeah, just buckle up. It's going to be a fun ride. But... We do have our third two-time guest on the show. You may have heard him from a few weeks ago when we talked about a lot of more interesting Indians, trade talks and proposals and everything else. We have another than Amari McFarson. Amari, welcome back to the show, man. It's been a while. Glad to have you back. Thank you. Uh, it's been, not, well, not a long time coming, but I've been listening in the past couple of weeks. You guys have been great as always, so I'm excited to just be on again. We're excited to have you, bro. Yeah, yeah, I know we appreciate that, man. Yeah, it's we're we've been trying to get you know interesting shows out. You know, with you know, you know how it is with this off season. It's taken a little while, but you know, the Columbus Crew won the MLS Cup last night, so that's awesome. We got an Ohio team winning a their second MLS Cup ever. Uh, the Cavs are back. You know, the new rookie sensation got a block in the game winner last night for the Cavs. You know, Browns might go ten and three tomorrow, so it's. It's been a whirlwind for Ohio sports. Now we're just waiting for the Indians to come back. But it's definitely been a bit. So how, how have you been doing, man? How's your weekend been going? Uh, pretty good. Um, just ready for school to be over, you know, watching sports, watching the Cavs yesterday, like you said, watching Columbus Crew win their second MLS Cup yesterday. That was pretty exciting. Uh, so two more months until pitchers and catchers report. Um, I'm painfully counting down the days. <laughs> man i heard that dude it's it's been it's taken a little while but luckily we're almost getting close to the end of 2020 and then hopefully 2021 is gonna be a little bit better and maybe hopefully we'll get some fans to games because you know with the browns got some fans this year maybe we'll get some fans back at progressive and I'm actually some crowd noise and uh <laughs> so bad that they have fans this year yeah right yeah give uh director of uh you know directive content uh Nick Gambona break from uh, having to do the soundboard next year. <laughs> that's what he did this year for the crowd noise. So if you guys haven't checked that out that episode, go check that one out with uh, Nick Gambone from the Indians. That was a, that was a pretty insightful episode. So make sure you go check that out. But so we do have a, a jam packed show tonight. We are going to talk with the 1995 Indians, which, you know, everyone, you know, and then their mother loves the 1995 Indians. But we do have some other things we need to talk about. Folks. We do have some non-tended stuff that did happen a couple weeks back. But with us talking about the 2007 Indians last week, 
we didn't get to it, and we figure, you know, we got Amari coming on, you know, we figure we get get some uh, news with him on that and get his thoughts on that. And we also have some MILB affiliate news that has come down the pipe as well with a lot of restructuring with the minor league system and teams going to different affiliations of major league teams. So we are going to talk about that real quick before we get to the 95 season. So back on the 2nd of December, uh, Zach Meisel tweeted out the news that the Indians non-tendered uh, outfielder Dion Shields Jr., Tyler Naquin, and I know I, Jeffrey Rodriguez, but I know in Spanish they don't really pronounce the J. But So they got non-tendered, but they did pick up the option. They did tender deals to Francisco Lindor, Phil Maton, Nick Whitgren, and Austin Hedges. Tom, um, I mean, is there any surprises from the non-tenders and guys who did get tendered? Or was this, you know, it was kind of obvious this was the route they were going to go down. Like, is there anyone in particular that surprised you? Or it's like, nah, this is not surprising at all. I was pretty on the fence about whether or not Delino DeShields was going to get tendered a contract or not. I'm sad to see Tyler Naquin go because I I wish they'd have given him another year or two, but I understand why they didn't. Um, it's just business, it's part of the ball ballgame. Um, can't trade Francisco Lindor if he doesn't have a contract, so... That makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, that was definitely an interesting thing. Um, I'll get my thoughts on Tyler Naquin and all in a second. But, Amari, is there anyone that stand out to you that was kind of surprising? Or did you kind of see this as a writing on the wall for the guys who did get non-tendered and then the guys who did get uh, tendered deals for the Indians? So to me, it's a little bit of both. And that may be an unpopular opinion because I don't want to sound like I'm hedging my bets. But for someone like Rodriguez, if you remember his his stats from a couple years ago, I don't have them up in front of me, so I don't exactly remember. But he wasn't too mm-hmm. bad. He, I believe, at least in my eyes, he could be a number four or a number five like Aaron Savali if he kept him around and he's healthy. Um, Delino DeShields, I know he kind of had a pretty – rough year last year, but I wouldn't mind seeing him uh, in a backup role almost because you could use his speed on the base pass like uh, like a uh, uh, Rajay Davis and, or Greg Allen. And Tyler Naquin, like Tom said, I'm actually kind of sad to see him go. Um, I think, think he's 28 now, so he's entering what would be considered the you know your prime years as an athlete. But um, when he's healthy, I thought he was one of the bright spots on the offense um, 2020 or not. Um, Obviously, he kind of made a splash his rookie year. It was top three in rookie of the year voting. Um, But I get not waiting around for someone to make that next step. So, um, so, So I get it. You know, it's business as usual. But, yeah, I was, to be honest, a little bit surprised by all three because when you break it down, I could see a fit for each for each of those players on this team. Could not agree with you more, man. Yeah, it is. it was interesting. And, uh, per, you know, per Zach Meisel on Twitter, uh, he did add that the Indians do have interest in bringing Rodriguez back, but uh, the, this that's I'm um, quoting here. The Indians do have an interest in bringing Jeffrey Rodriguez back, though likely not in a major league deal. 
he dealt with shoulder and back trouble in 2020, and his velocity didn't bounce back as they had hoped. So I'm guessing because of the fact that his velocity wasn't there like it used to be, maybe the Indians are kind of like, we don't know if we want to keep him on a fort on a 40-man roster spot or you know, give him a tenure contract and stuff like that. So it's kind of like maybe they're going to try to get him on a cheaper deal. So I don't know what's going on with that. The Shields, I think that overall he was offensively okay, but his defense kind of hurt him a little bit. And I think with this, the massive log jam we're going to have next year in outfield, I think the Indians are kind of like, we don't really need a guy who – kind of has a similar attributes to like one of like Oscar Mercado with speed and okay defense and a decent bat. And with Tyler Naquin, I'm kind of sad they did let him go because like what Amari said, I think Naquin, when he's healthy and isn't chasing high fastballs, I think he's one of their most consistently good hitters. And he's pretty much, he's pretty much solid defensively almost year in and year out. I think they maybe give him like a one year deal or something. Because, you know, it's Tyler Naquin. I know he hasn't really – he's dealt with a lot of health issues. But overall, I thought Naquin was a pretty solid outfielder. So it kind of sucks to see him go. And, you know, with him being our main logo, it's kind of like, are we going to change it or not? And we're not going to change it because, I mean, the whole name is because of what Tyler Naquin did. But in terms of the team itself, it kind of sucks, you know, to see Naquin go. I can kind of see why the Shields maybe not. And with Rodriguez, it's kind of like, I guess, it's just more of a velocity issue, and maybe the Indians want to get a smaller-term deal on that end. But with, you know, Lindor, Maton, Wicker, and Hedges, I'm not really shocked by those guys because Hedges, because they traded for Hedges. He's going to be, you know, the 1B to Roberto Perez. You know, we got the two best defensive catchers in baseball the last couple of years, obviously, with Bebo being back-to-back gold gloves. You know, Phil Maton did a pretty solid job out of the bullpen. Nick Wickering has been solid ever since we got him in a trade. And obviously, you know, if you want to trade Linder, you kind of got to give him a contract. You know, it's going to be $20 million probably on arbitration. So that's not really a shock there in terms of the Indians. So, do you get, uh, Tom, do you got anything else on the non tendered stuff or are you pretty much set with moving on to the next subject? Um, I'm good with moving on because I'm. I'm very fascinated by some of the affiliation news, not just with Cleveland, but really around the league. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Mari, do you have anything else on the non-tendered guys, or are you uh, are you good to move on to affiliation stuff too? Uh, no, I'm I'm good to go. Okay, so the Indians, uh, nine minutes, a couple days ago, they dropped the news that. They have restructured, well, quote-unquote restructured their farm system affiliation because of the new deal with you know, major, you know, major League Baseball and the minor league system of teams either having less teams in their farm system or teams moving to other you know, affiliated teams getting, going to other major league teams. So the Indians are going to roll with the Columbus Clippers as their AAA team. The Akron Rubber Ducks is going to be their double-A team. and But they did switch their high-A and their low-A teams. Before, it was Lynchburg as the advanced day in the, in the Lake County Captains as the low-A ball. But now they've actually flip-flopped. And now the Lake County Captains are the new advanced A team for the Cleveland Indians. And Lynchburg will be the low-A affiliate for the Indians. So now, basically, every team from A ball 
you know, advanced A ball to triple A is in Cleveland. So basically, if you're a minor league player, you basically don't have to leave the state of Ohio if you get promoted because you're going from Lake County, driving down to Akron, driving down 7-1 to to Columbus, and then 7-1 to all the way back to Cleveland. Uh, unfortunate bad news, the, uh, the Mahoning Valley Scrappers, which, you know, for me and Tom, holds a bit, you know, big fire in our hearts because of you know, different reasons and all. Yeah, definitely for me because I actually worked for the team back in 2013 as a bear vendor, and it, it stinks to see them go. But they're going to be part of the new MLB Draft League with, like, five other teams from the, from the former New York Penn League, which is basically going to be, like, MLB's version of the Cape Cod League, where it's a lot of collegiate players who want to try to advance their draft stock, or guys who did get drafted and want to play in the summer league. It's all wooden bat. Um, so basically, it's just uh, an MLB ran Cape Cod League, if you want to look at it that way. So it's them. I think it's like uh, West Virginia and a couple other teams. I don't, I don't, no one really cares about I those guys. But it, just, uh, it just stinks to see. One of those teams that got dropped to the draft league was the former multiple mm-hmm. Eastern League champion Trenton Thunder. So they're no longer the Yankees double A team. Which Oh, uh, was it Trent? Yeah, okay. Trent was one of them. I know I know it was like this I know it was like this Okay, because I know it's like the State College Spikes and the West Virginia, I think Bears or something like that. I didn't realize that Trent yeah, was the other I one. Yeah, because I was Jeez, looking through crazy. the list of them and I saw that the Yankees had a new double A team and it's the Somerset Patriots and I was like that's weird. It used to be the Trenton Thunder. I wonder what happened with this. And then I scrolled all the way down and saw that Trenton uh, had become one of those MLB draft league teams. So I did a little digging and found out that, you know, for whatever reason, the Yankees just decided that that was the way things were going to be. So um, I watched a lot of yeah, really that's... great Eastern League championship games at Canal Park against well, what were the arrows and became the rubber ducks and the Trenton Thunder. So it's more interesting yeah. to me, I guess. Yeah, that's Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. But yeah, in terms of the years of the guy, of the teams being with the Indians, the Clippers have been with the Indians since two thousand and nine. Uh the Akron Rubber Ducks have been around since nineteen ninety seven, but of course like what Tom said, they used to be the Arrows, who I actually used to do an internship through college with the with the arrows at the time, and then Lake County's been with the team since two thousand and three, and then Lynchburg Hillcats since two thousand and fifteen. Um, Amari, what are your thoughts on um, the affiliation news with the Indians, and you know with you know the Scrappers no longer being with the team, and then you know, the Lake County captains getting that advanced A status? Like, how do you feel overall with? the affiliation change within the organization for the Indians. I think it's pretty nice and pretty interesting because now you have, for the Indians, their top three affiliates all within pretty much a two-hour drive of Cleveland. So that'll make it easier for the front office to, you know, kind of check in on prospects. And, I mean, we've all seen the news where there's a a last-minute promotion or when there's a a doubleheader and, you know, the new rule where you can now have 26 active people. So I just think it'll make it easier, especially going into um, kind of a year of uncertainty after, 
what 2020 has been. No one really knows what 2021 is going to look like, really, for any sport. So um, I think it's unfortunate for Mahoney Valley um, and kind of weird for, you know, Lynchburg and, and, and Lake County to pretty much switch. But like I said, now the top three affiliates are now, are now all within a two-hour drive. So I think that'll just make it easier. And we've seen good talent come out of, you know, the captains before over the years, whether it's been with the, um, I think they were with the Yankees or somebody like that. But even with the Indians, we've seen, yeah, it was the Yankees. Um, you know, big name, yeah, big name players come out of, come out of that, that system and that team. So I think it'll, you know, it's looking, looking pretty bright, uh, you know, 2021 and on. Yeah, definitely for sure. And the funny thing was, you know, Lindor, you know, for instance, Lindor's been through there, you know, a bunch of different guys. The funny thing is I actually saw Trevor Crow in his rookie season <laughs> in the minors <laughs> at Lake County. I actually I actually got um, – because me and my dad, that I forget what year it was, we did a like a, I feel like like a, a minor league tour of all the teams that the Indians had. So we went to Mahoney Valley, we went to Akron, Lake County, we even went to Kinston when we saw the Kinston Indians at the time. And I remember when we went to the Lake County game, every game we went to, I got those. I know you guys probably remember, like, when they actually had, like, the team sets and, like, that plastic sleeve with, the like, the little Velcro or, like, that glue backing. But you have, like, the whole team in there, and it's, like, five or six bucks. You got, like, 20-something cards. I remember grabbing a Trevor Crow rookie card out of that pack, and I'm like, okay, this is, this is awesome. So I saw Trevor Crow as a rookie with the captains. Yeah, it's just crazy all the talent that's come out of there. But like you said, Amari, it's great the fact that you got all the you got the high A, the triple A teams in you know in Ohio, and the fact that all you have to do is like either go down ninety or just drive down seventy one, and you're you're getting all three teams and stuff like that. You know, hitting seventy six or Ohio eight just to get to Akron. So it's definitely an interesting thing just to see where the Indians have all their guy, all their basically their major guys in that same state of Ohio. Tom, what are your thoughts overall with the affiliation change for the Indians having basically everyone in the state of Ohio now in terms of high, uh, high A to triple A? I love it. Um, Cause I think it's good for Indians fans that you're a majority of your players are basically in Northeast Ohio. I mean, yeah. Okay. Columbus is, you know, an hour and 45 minutes, two hours south. And then if you really want to go see some real young guys play in Lynchburg, cool. But, I mean, just look at some of the guys who come through our system at various levels. I mean, you know, we had Chris Archer. We had Tori Lavulo. Um, Kelly Stinnett. Richie Sexton, Marco Scudero, you know, Jarrett Wright, uh, Steve, Steven Wright, the knuckleballer, you know, spent some time in our system. Carl, Carl, Bradley Zimmer, Carlos Santana, Lindor, Indians, But just to look at how many guys that have made an impact in ba- Major League Baseball in various ways have come through Lake County, not oh, yeah. just, you know, Frankie or Hosey or, you know, those guys. I mean, it's been a lot of good guys to move through the through our farm system. So it's cool that it's going to be mostly in Northeast Ohio now. 
Yeah, for sure. It's 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 great knowing that we have, you know, a chance to be able for fans to go see guys, you know, who probably just got drafted or you know are in high A ball. They go down to Akron and see like well, you know what you've said, Tom, in the past, like the key prospect guys of, you know, because that's where most of the top prospects are are in Double A because Triple A is a lot of mix of guys who are trying to make the show or not really or like good or not good enough to make the show yet, but are not, you know, not double A guys. So it's definitely interesting to see all the prospects, you know, within an hour and a half distance, if that to Cleveland. So it's definitely interesting. I'm glad that we're able to now have all of our big teams up there. And I did see a lot of fans were kind of upset with the Indians for getting rid of the scrappers and it's, not really the Indians' fault because it's just Major League Baseball wanted to reduce a lot of the minor league teams and, you know, all that stuff. So nothing really the Indians could do. It's just is what it is. But at least the scrappers are still in baseball to some extent. So, yeah, they're not with the Indians officially, but you could still go see, you know, high-end you know, college talent and stuff like their high end high school talent play in this new major league, you know, draft league, which is, you know, I think it'll be interesting to watch. I mean, I don't know what the schedule is going to be like or how to watch it on TV, but I think it'd be very interesting. Like Tom, what do you think of this new MLB draft league that the major league is starting, which is kind of coinciding with the Cape Cod league? And do you think this new draft league might put a damper on the prestige of what the Cape is. Like, what are your uh, for one, on I really don't care about the Cape Cod League. Um, two, I need to do some more research into what the MLB Draft League is going to be because it's bizarre to me that there are, what, five or six teams that, that all... It's six teams. It, it's six teams. It's, it's draft-eligible guys who guy, or guys who have been drafted, and it's a wood bat. It's technically like a quote-unquote wood bat collegiate league is basically what it's being framed as. But my hang-up for it is there are 30 major league organizations. So does that mean I, – I, I guess I'm just confused on how some of it's going to translate. Is there going to be you know, a, another draft league draft or something? Is that going to turn out to be like a – something very similar to rule five. That's just the only question I really have about it, but I think we'll see that as time goes on. Yeah. It'll definitely be interesting for sure. Um, Amari, what do you think of this new draft league? And do you think that this new league ran by MLB will put a damper on, like I said, the prestige of what the Cape Cod league has been for the last what, 40, 50 years? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Ultimately, I don't think so. I can see where they're going with it, um, and I could see how it could be a threat to the, you know, the prestige of the Cape Cod. But I think ultimately, no. I just think it's kind of another opportunity to showcase talent. And we talk about how MLB has a, a marketing problem. They have some of the most popular and richest athletes in this country and yet people don't know who they are if they were to see them walk on the street so i just think it's a it's another way to like i said showcase talent just kind of shuffle everything around and and 
throwing stuff at the wall and see what sticks. So hopefully that answers your question. No, 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 it's totally fine. I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on that because the Cape has always been something that's kind of been really important for guys who wanted to, you know, raise their draft stock or get noticed because the Cape's always been something that's been kind of huge for, you know, college players and you get noticed. So, no, I mean, those those are answers are fine. I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on it because the Cape is, you know, so well known. It's just interesting how, how the MLB now has this, draft league all of a sudden the fact that you're taking like six teams from the New York Penn League and throwing them in this makeshift wood bat collegiate type style and like who gets to go there like do you get invited there and stuff like that and like is it like how the capes ran where like you get invited and you just get randomly placed on teams like what Tom said I don't know what's going to happen with it but it's going to be something that'll be interesting for sure whenever they start their season, which I probably guess probably be sometime in June, just like how, you know, those summer collegiate leagues are. So, and like how the scrappers and New York Penn league was the short season, like 60, I forget how many games they play in, in their short season ball, but it'll be something to watch for sure. But it's time to get to the meat and potatoes of this podcast, which I know a lot of people are probably can't came to listen to, and they're probably like, man, these guys have been talking a bunch about non-1995 Indians. So don't worry, guys. We are officially getting into the 1995 Indians. But before we get into the overall season itself, we kind of want to go back a little bit to see how the roster of the 95 Indians was formed. So we are going to go back to 1989, which led to probably – what would you consider the linchpin or the starting point of the rebuild of the Cleveland Indians? And that is the Joe Carter trade. So, Tom, I know you've been really dying to talk about this Joe Carter trade. Do you want to let the fans know what was a part of that Joe Carter trade in December of uh, 1989 and what team he went to and uh, who the Indians eventually got in that trade? Yeah, so that was – a huge, huge move for the Indians because they traded Joe Carter, who was arguably one of the best players on the team at the time, and they traded him for three prospects to the San Diego Padres. They Stop me if this sounds familiar. But they traded Joe Carter... <laughs> who was a fantastic power hitter, could hit for average, steal a bunch of bases, hit a bunch of triples, you know, a 30-30 guy. And they traded 100-something home run, yeah, 100-something RBIs a season. And they traded him for Chris James, Carlos Baerga, and Sandy Alomar Jr., now, it's important that I get Chris James in there because I always forget that Chris James was part of that because he didn't do anything for the Indians. He was just trade bait. Yeah, which is crazy to think that with – no one really remembers that there was a third guy in that trade. The guys that everyone really remembers was Bayerga and Elmer Jr. because of what they did in their careers 
with the Indians. So yeah, it's screw you brought up James because if you even if you look on the roster that actually was on the '95 team, there's a lot of names that people maybe don't remember as much because this offense was so potent that like even the pitching stat, like the rotation of the bullpen, you know, were kind of you know like oh we have these guys. I totally forgot about them because you think of just how much of a juggernaut that offense was. I mean, yeah, it's huge. You know, you got Carlos Baerga, you got, you know, Sandy Almar Jr. And also don't forget, you know, not even a couple of years before, the Indians actually drafted Albert Dell, you know, in the second round in, in uh, 1987 at the 47th pick overall. So that's another huge thing for the Indians, too, is the fact that they got Albert Bell in the draft in 87. Which is like, oh my gosh, <laughs> how can we forget about that guy? So, I mean, Amari, like, what, do you, like, what do you think of that? You know, that trait of Joe Carter, you know, sending him to the Indians, you know, averaging 30 home runs a season, 100 RBIs, you know, averaged through the roof, and you're bringing back a bunch of prospects that you don't know how they're gonna work out. Like, what are your thoughts overall? Just thinking about it now just how much of an impact that trade was for Joe Carter to the Padres for essentially Bayarga and Elmer Jr. So I, I would like to, and this is probably poorly, but I would like to compare it to another uh, San Diego Padres-Cleveland Indians trade where the trade is done and you don't really think anything of it, and then it turns out really well. Um, I don't remember who we traded, but we traded – whoever for Corey Kluber we got him from the San Diego Padres minor league system and all he did was pretty much lead this team to multiple division titles and the World Series uh, appearance and two Cy Young awards so to trade someone like Joe Carter (laughs) there you go uh, who like you said was one of the best players on this team Uh, 1989 was I think another I think they won like 70 or something games um, and I don't think anything mm. anybody really thought anything of it to get back Sandy Alomar and Carlos Baerga. Um And like you said, nobody really remembers Chris James, who was the third person in that trade. But obviously Sandy Alomar and Car- Carlos Baerga are two of the the most important people that would lead the Indians to two World Series appearances, um, you know, during the 90s and really rejuvenated that, that popularity that the Indians would come to have. Uh, within the city of, of Cleveland, um, so yeah, it was it was very important. But of course, like I said at the time, I don't think anybody knew what would happen. It was just we're trading a big name player. You could probably relate it to any other Cleveland sports trade where we we trade a pretty big name player who meant so much to the team to get back at the time relative nobodies, and you just kind of have to wait and see what they turn out to be. Um, but luckily for us, um, it turned out well and it was kind of a win-win because of course a couple years later Joe Carter would win a World Series with the uh, Toronto Blue Jays Um, and Sandy Alomar and Carlos Baerga would be uh, Cleveland faithfuls uh, for years to come. What's kind of cool too with the Joe Carter trade because that's what set in motion um, Roberto Alomar eventually ending up with the Indians and Tony Fernandez because they were part of the Joe Carter trade from San Diego to Toronto and to touch on what you were talking about with the uh, Corey Kluber trade. We, that was the Jake Westbrook, Ryan Ludwig trade. 
So we sent Westbrook to the Cardinals, Ludwig yep, to the I Padres. The Padres sent Nick Greenwood to the Cardinals, and we paid $2.7 of Westbrook's salary. Man, that was <laughs> – you can't talk about a great trade for the Indians for the fact that like, just how great that was. The fact, yeah, we had to get rid of a couple guys, but to get a two-time Cy Young winner and a guy to lead the Indians to a World Series, and you know Corey Kluber, who's everyone still loves. Yeah, that's great comparison, Amari. I mean, yeah, I mean, it seems like for a long time the Indians have had a lot of huge, you know, a lot of trades with the Padres. And here's another name that the Indians have gotten for the Padres. Uh, he actually was the manager of the 95 Indians in uh, Mike Hargrave. The Indians actually traded for him. I think it was 1980. I want to say it was like 80, oh, 81 or 82, because he was with the Indians for six years before he retired and became a manager in the minor league system. But, yeah, Mike Hargrove actually got traded for from the Padres to the Indians in the, uh, the early 80s. So the Indians have had a lot of trade partners or a lot of guys traded to the Padres. So it's interesting how that how 1979. That, what was that? Oh, okay, so I I I was close. I knew it was and it was around that time, but yeah. Mike Hargrove was a Padre at one point. His first his first game in Cleveland as a you know, as a, an opposing player, he was with the Rangers. It was on ten cent beer night. So welcome to Cleveland. Mike Hargrove. <laughs> Welcome to Cleveland. You can be part of a We riot should make that an Cleveland. episode actually talk about Ten Cent Beer Night, although we won't be as cool as, you know, Bob Golick, but No, no, I mean no one's cool as Bob Golick, I mean. I mean Mike Golick, but anyway. Is. I mean he's a legend, so no, Bob yeah, Cole I, I knew Browns, yeah. and he was the guy who narrated so that spot for ESPN. Well, yeah, Bob and Mike Golick. I mean, yeah, just the Golicks in general are just amazing people. I mean, you can't go wrong with either one of them. So, point still stands. You know, we, not, we're not going to be as cool as Bob or Mike Golick, so they're legends. So, <laughs> so moving on to the 1992 season, this was, I would consider, another huge asset move for the Cleveland Indians. Uh, there's a couple that season, actually. Uh, there is one for an infielder, but we are going to start with an outfielder on this one because the Indians actually got Kenny Lofton from the Houston Astros for none other than ke for catcher Eddie. To, uh, I really wish I could now pronounce his last name right. Tobinsey? Yeah, Tobinsey and pitcher Willie Blair. Which at the time, because I've been I'm reading this book by uh, Jim Ingram called Mark Hargrove and the Cleveland Indians, and they do talk about the winter meetings of that seat of the ninety of nineteen ninety one, uh, before the ninety two season, where the Indians actually were at the winter meetings. It was Hargrove and uh, John Hart were up there, and they were they picked up a Tabasi because or Tabanasi because they knew the the Astros. Thank you. <laughs> Tom, you're you're better at pronouncing weird last names than I am, so I think I have you to well, – yeah. Um, 
so the Indians knew that the Astros needed a catcher, and that's why they picked him up. You know, that's why they picked you know Eddie up, and that's why he was part of the, he was a key part of that trade to get Ken Lofton, because at the time you know Craig Biggio was the catcher for the Astros, but they were going to move him to second base, so that's why the catcher spot was the necessary thing to get. You know, uh, a position they needed, so that's why the Indians got the guy that they did off the waivers and traded him to. Houston Astros, which eventually led to Ken Lofton, who was, at the end of his career, the Indians' leading stolen base guy and probably one of the most prolific center fielders the, the Indians have had for a really long time. Uh, Mari, I'm going to start with you, man, on this one. How, like, do you, like, how big do you think that move was, considering the fact that you know, Ken Lofton didn't really play college ball Junior. until about like, his senior year of college in Arizona? And he just, you know, it was his junior, but he only played like five games. So they, con- they consider his senior year to be like his coming out party. Um, but like I said, Amari, what do you feel? Like, how do you feel about that trade? Getting Kane Lofton, how much of like, how much of an impact was that? To get Kenny, who was a really big guy of hitting the gaps with, you know, some average and just his speed. Because he's got like 462 stolen bases for the Indians, I believe. Uh, off the top of my head, like, how do you feel about that in terms of the Indians making that move in '91 to get Kenny from the Astros? Uh, I think it was it was huge. It was just like the the previous trade that we talked about. I mean, all these trades are pretty huge, but when you talk about someone like Kenny Lofton, who more more times than than once left Cleveland and came back, but during that '90s run, he made uh, at least five. All-star games. He was a uh, one gold gloves. He was a stolen base leader. Um, he's a near 300 career hitter. Hitter. Um, so he was very instrumental in in helping this team get to where they wanted to get. I mean, obviously we fell short twice. Um, but I think for him, he played a role in more than one way because he was traded from the the Indians in '96. Helped that Braves team mm-hmm. get to the World Series in 97. I mean, he comes back, but obviously in that trade, we, we get a couple of good players, you know, that help us, you know, before he comes back. But Kenny Lofton getting Kenny Lofton, I mean, that was, I think that was a huge, huge help. Um, kind of like Rajay Davis, but with power and I guess better average. But, you know, he, he did what he had to do. And, yeah. and <laughs> you know, everybody played a key role, but he was definitely one of those leaders of the team and, and one of the more popular ones. I mean, people still talk about him to this day. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can't mention Kenny Lofton without talking about the catch mm-hmm. in center. I mean, that's that's just an image. Like, you, you could say Kenny Lofton, and that probably, that's the number one thing people are going to remember is just Kenny Lofton just climbing up that center field wall and just snagging that home run right in front of the bullpen. You know, progressive just – yeah, literally climbing the fence like Spider-Man, and everyone just loses their mind because it's just like, oh my gosh, how did he catch that? It's just in Zach Miles' book, you know, you know, Cleveland rocked about the '95 Indians. Like he, they, they talked about, he talked about that in the book, and just all of his teammates' reactions, you know, from Bayerga to Vasquez to you know the pitchers to Sandy, like everyone was like, oh my gosh, how did he? Like they couldn't believe he just climbed the wall and just snagged it. it was, it's still probably you probably see it on any highlight reel for the most insane catches ever in baseball. I mean, Tom, what are your thoughts on you know the Indians? You know, 
basically getting a catcher knowing that they're like, all right, we're going we're gonna to flip this guy to get probably one of the best center fielders the Indians have had. You can almost say, you know, in the modern era of the Indians from like the, you know, early 90s to now, like what are your thoughts on that move to get um, Kenny from Houston? Picking up players to use as trade bait is certainly nothing new, I think, in any sport. And you didn't know how good Kenny Lofton was going to be. Right. I mean, you think about a guy that up until that point, the the biggest thing in his career was that he backed up Steve Kerr at Arizona as a point guard on the basketball team. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you just don't know. I mean, he didn't really hit a ton in the 20 games he played for Houston in 1991. So to have, to have a guy who only hits 200 in 20 games to make that jump to 285 in a full season as a rookie, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, if you look at his AAA stats that he had, I mean, he hit he had a 367 OPB with 17 triples and 40 stolen bases. I mean, you could see there were some glimpses of like, all right, this guy might not hit for a lot of average, but if he can get on base at some point and with some good rate, he's going to steal you a lot of bases. So I can kind of see – I see what you're saying. You know, it's like it's not – you don't really know how good he is going to be the hitter, but for the fact that you could see that – Okay, defensively he's good because he's got the speed, and then that speed is like you know danger on the base paths. So, but I get what you're saying with that for sure. So, yeah, that was huge to get the Indians from you know, the Indians to get Kenny Lofton, and another bit and another huge acquisition was in the was in March of 1992. The Cleveland Indians actually traded pitcher Kurt. Les Canick and Oscar Munoz to the Minnesota Twins for a then 26-year-old first baseman in Paul Sorrento, which would be another key pickup for the Indians because, you know, Sorrento, yeah, he did hit in the bottom third of the lineup because the lineup was so stacked, but Sorrento was such a uh, a good hitter in general. The fact that he was basically stuck behind a couple, you know, veteran players in Minnesota. The Indians were like, well, let's go get them. And it kind of worked out. I mean, Paul Sorrento is a name that, you know, you can't talk about the 95 Indians without bringing him up. So, Tom, like, what do you think of, you know, the Indians getting Sorrento in March of 92, basically not even a few months after getting Kenny Lofton to have, you know, you basically already had in the 92 season, you had Lofton, Bell, Sorrento, Bayerga, and Alamo Jr. already in this lineup, you know, three years before 95 and even a couple years before, you know, the 94 team and, you know, opening Jacobs Field and all that stuff. Like, what do you think of the Indians getting Sorrento in that time where they just got Kenny Lofton and then they had Albert Bell come up and everyone else from the Sorrento was with the Padres? A key in a different way than maybe you're thinking, because he was also somebody that helped Jim Tomey develop as not only as a hitter but as a fielder. You know, you think of Jim Tomey, everyone's like, "Oh, legendary first baseman," but he was a third baseman when he came up. And so, I mean, exactly. I, exactly. I like it. It's one of the best 
stretches of work by a front office that any franchise has had in a long time. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, if you look the in the '92 season for Paul Sorrento, he did get 18 home runs and 60 RBIs and an OPS of 784. So and he was hitting like fifth in the lineup behind, you know, Lofton, uh, left fielder Thomas Howard, who the Indians got in the trade with the Padres in '92. Tell me if you heard this story before, um, like what Tom said. Then Bayerga, Albert Bell, and then behind him you had Mark Witten who they got in, in June of 91 from the trade with the Blue Jays. Brooke Jacoby, who played third base, who's a free agent from Oakland that January of 92. Shortstop Mark Lewis, who they got in the first round of the 88 draft. And then Sandy Alomar in that trade as well. So, I mean, that was your that was basically your one through nine for most of the time for the Indians. Um, Amari, what are your thoughts on the Indians going to get Sorrento at the right time where he's basically stuck behind other guys in Minnesota, bring him in, make him the everyday first baseman for the Indians, and then eventually would help out, you know, a transitioning third baseman to first baseman, you know, Jim Tomey. Like, like what are I your mean, thoughts like on you that? Like you said, at the right time. And like Tom said, um, you know, Paul Sorrento, he, that was his last year in Cleveland. But a lot of people don't realize that Jim Tomey was a third baseman when he came up. Um, and Paul Sorrento, wasn't an everyday player. Um, he didn't really hit for average, but I have the stats up in front of me now. He did hit 25 home runs. He drove in 79 RBIs um, and, and helped develop who would be pretty much the face of this team in the cornerstone at first base in Jim Tomey, um, who will be here for the next six years after or so. But, um, yeah, he was very instrumental in that way. <laughs> And I think you can't really discount his contribution in that way um, because it paid off for his paid off mm -hmm. for us years to come after he left with somebody like Jim Tomey, who obviously is a Hall of Famer and has his number retired for this, you know, for this franchise. So, yeah, at the right time, I think, is the, the key word, like you said, um, wasn't a huge contributor offensively, but. And in more ways than one, he helped this team, especially mm -hmm. after he left. Yeah, for sure. So it was huge to get Paul Sorrento. And then we are moving on to the 1993 season. That's when you get Jim Tomey. You know, he gets up and gets some at-bats. You know, then you got Mary Ramirez and all that stuff. So he comes in. And, um, you know, the 93 lineup mostly consisted of Ken Lofton at center. Wayne Kirby in right, Bayerga at second, Albert Bell in left, uh, Paul Sorrento at first, Reggie Jefferson, um, who they got in the trade of June of 91 from Cincinnati. Then you had Alvaro Espinoza that they picked off of free agency in April of 92. Then Felix Furman that they got in the trade with Pittsburgh back in March of 89. And then, you know, they had you know Jim Tomey come up and then had, you know, Sandy Almar Jr. They also even used a guy named Junior Ortiz who they picked up in free agency in December of 91. Um, and, you know, the big names that stood out that season was, you know, Carlos Baerga, 21 home runs, 114 RBIs, and then Albert Bell, 38 home runs and 129 RBIs. Uh, Paul Sorrento with 18 home runs and, you know, 65 RBIs. And Ken Lofton that season in 93, 
stole 70 bases. And let's see, Sandy Alomar Jr. that year, uh, 32 RBIs and three home runs. He only had 237 at-bats. Uh, Jim Tomey, two home runs and 28 RBIs. And what makes 1993 an interesting year was for the fact that that was the last time that the Indians would have a losing record for a good span of what would be the rest of the 90s into the early 2000s. So moving on to the 1994 season, uh, the Indians did get Omar Vizquel in a trade in December of uh, 1993 on December 20th. They got him. Uh, they gave up Felix Furman and Reggie Jefferson in cash um, to get Omar Vizquel from the Mariners. And then the 1994 lineup would be Kay Lofton, Omar Vizquel, Carlos Baerga, Albert Bell. Then they got Eddie Murray in a free agency move in that December of 93. Paul Sorrento, Manny Ramirez, who they drafted in the first round of the 13th overall in the 91 draft. Jim Tummy and Sandy Alamarjini. You basically already have your lineup set in the year of 1994 where the Indians... You know, the Christians, you know, Jacobs Field had a lot of big comebacks, especially opening day when they came back against the Mariners. And unfortunately, they did finish the season one game back. I think it was the Chicago White Sox who did win the division because of a player strike was basically canceled the rest of the regular season and basically uh, canceled the rest of the playoffs and then kind of shortened the 95 season. But going back to getting Eddie Murray off of a free agency, who in that season was 38, and then getting Omar Vizquel in the trade for the Mariners. Amari, I'm going to start with you on this one. Getting Eddie Murray and Omar Vizquel, how much of an impact, I know, you know, this is a pretty simple, you know, it's kind of a clown question, as Tom would say, but how big of an impact was that for the Indians getting Omar Vizquel, who was 27 at the time, and then Eddie Murray who was 38 at the time in free agency with him and then Omar in a trade with Seattle. How big of an impact was that basically knowing that you now have your essentially set lineup, which would be the 94 and the 95? Uh, I think it was huge, um, especially for Eddie Murray, who even at 38 was was no slouch. Um, He didn't have a fantastic exit from Cleveland, but – just like we talked about uh, in my previous episode, we talked about veteran leadership, and I think Eddie Murray is, is you know, was or at least was one of those people. Um, you talk about a future Hall of Famer at the time, um, and Omar Vizquel, who, if I'm not mistaken, not is not a Hall of Famer, which to me and I think to uh, most, if not every, he's on the ballot. He's on the ballot. Got it. He's um, on the ballot right I now. I think for me and, and most Cleveland fans, if not every mm-hmm. Cleveland fan, who sh- he should have already been a Hall of Famer. Um, but you talk about somebody who, like Francisco Lindor, who we obviously always bring up, but just played the position with, with grace, was just so efficient and reliable at what he did, especially defensively. Um, and we talk about those cornerstones like uh, Alomar and Tomey. Um, he was obviously one of those cornerstones of those 90 teams. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously it was it was so important. And I know we talked about Manny Ramirez, and he wasn't a part of the question, but if I could just touch on him really quickly. You want to talk about one of the best mm-hmm. hitters to ever play this game. 
even now it's like absurd to me that like he started his career in Cleveland and and we drafted him like how crazy is that like anybody could have signed him anybody could have drafted him but Cleveland got him yeah. and, and he just turned out to be one of the absolute best hitters in this game um and and early on too it's not like we traded him he went to Boston and he then turned into somebody else. You could see he put up ridiculous numbers while wearing a Cleveland uniform. Um, and unfortunately, we couldn't capture those two World Series titles. But getting Murray and, and Vizquel were were more than instrumental in uh, in the success of the 90s. Yeah, going back to what you said, Mayor Ramirez, I mean, that season, he was 22. He had 17 home runs and 60 RBIs. Which and he's batting seventh in the lineup behind Sorrento and ahead of Tommy. And then you have Eddie Murray, who was a DH in the fifth spot, hit 17 home runs and 76 RBIs, which is behind a guy Eddie like Murray Albert Bell, who had 36 bases. home runs and 101 RBIs. Exactly. Like, yeah, 38 years old, stealing eight bases. And it's just, and the fact that Ken Lofton, I want to bring up his stealing stats because Ken Lofton is a madman. Stole 60 bases that year in front of a guy like Omar Vizquel who had 33 RBIs in a home run. But, you know, that's when, you know, Omar had his ridiculous streak of gold gloves in a row because, like you said, he was basically silk at short. Like, that's all he was. Like, if you want to say silk personified, just no look no farther than Omar Vizquel. And, I mean, Jim Tomey that year, 20 home runs and 52 RBIs in the eighth spot. And Sandy Elmer Jr., 14 home runs and 43 RBIs in the ninth spot. I mean, you're looking at almost every guy other than Omar, double-digit home runs and, you know, you know RBIs either 33 or better. So, I mean, that whole lineup was just getting RBIs left and right. I mean, Tom, what do you think of, you know, the additions of Eddie Murray and Omar Vizquel in 94? Make it, you know, well, you know, late December of 93 to eventually set up the team for 94 in the strike shortened season, you know, the strike ending season, which then led to a strike, you know, with a shortened season in 95. Like how big was those two guys being the, like being the last kind of big pieces to be added in to the 90, you know, which would be the 94 Indians, which would lead into the 1995 powerhouse. The best teams in baseball in 1994. And I think that they get overlooked a little bit because of that strike-shortened season, no playoffs, no World Series. And those guys just found their groove. I mean, I'm fairly certain that I'm on the record on our show as being a massive Omar Vizquel fan. And, you know, we had Eddie Murray at the end of his career. I mean, Eddie Murray became a 3,000-hit player in a Cleveland Indians uniform. And he could teach some of those young guys how to be a consummate pro, how to show up to the ballpark every single day and just put the work in. I mean, he'd been there and done that. The man had been in baseball since, in the major, since 1977. Yeah, it's it's just it's just crazy overall how that you know just adding those two guys on at the right time with the new stadium opening up in 94, which then you got a lot of, you know, comeback wins in 94. 
you know, all, just unfortunately falling, you know, one game short behind the White Sox and, uh, you know, the, you know, the strike happened and night, right. There's a good chance the Indians, if they kept that season going, they could have had a run in 94. It's just, unfortunately, it's going to be one of those what-if seasons if the Indians actually were able to play a full season. And, you know, we go to 1995, you know, which is basically, you know, the next our next topic was basically, you know, we we built, you know, we wanted to build up that, tra- you know, that path to what would be the the 1995, holy crap! Here are the here are the Cleveland Indians on the national stage. Like the Indians are no longer that joke of a franchise from the 50s to like the early 90s, where they're just you know a doormat for everyone else, averaging like 5,000 to 7,000 fans a game, not even hitting like 700,000 fans in a season. This is basically the 1995 roster off a of Baseball Reference. So we're gonna. You know, guys who were either, you know, on the whole with the team the whole time, or guys who came on a little bit later. This is basically, you know, your team for the Indians. And so we're going to start with the position players. You had guys, you know, this is no particular order. This is how Baseball Reference has this. You know, you had Tony Pena, Paul Sorrento, Carlos Baerga, Omar Vizquel, Jim Tomey, Albert Bell, Kenny Lofton, Manny Ramirez. And Eddie Murray, those are your main nine guys. Now, I say Tony Pena because he played 91 games that year because Sandy was hurt for most of that season because Sandy only played in 66, but they did get a 38-year-old Tony Pena to play you know, in relief for him that year. And then you also had Wayne Kirby, Herbert Perry, Alvaro Espinoza, Dave Winfield. Dave Winfield was an Indian. Ruben Amaro, Eddie Tucker, Jesse Levis, Billy Ripken, Brian Giles was an Indian. Age 24, Brian Giles showed up in six games. Uh, Jeremy Burnitz and David Bell, um, who was 22 at the time, did play for the Indians. Here is your pitchers for that team. Dennis Martinez, Charles Nagy, Oral Hershiser, Mark Clark, Chad OJ, Ken Hill, uh, Jose Mesa, Julian Tavares, or Tavares, Eric Plunk, Jim Poole, Paul Ossenmacher, or Asenmacher, Bud Black, Jason Grimsley, Alan Embry, Albie Lopez, Dennis Cook, Jeff Paul Shuey, Joe Ray, Rowe, R-O-A, Rowe, Roa, John Farrell, and Greg Olson. That would be your the guys who would show up for the ninety five minutes. Oh, Tom, was it Chad? Was it Chad OJ or was it Chad or was it Chad Oga or Aga? I can I can Ojea. Okay, his last name always threw me off. And my dad always made fun of me for throwing his name off so bad. It's like it's like pronouncing Manaway because it's like M A T U A, but it's not Mantua. It's Manaway. So my dad always gave me trouble for that one. But I mean. Tom, I'm going to start with you. You know, what name off that list that I, that I listed off kind of was like, holy crap, I forgot this guy was an Indian. Like, is there a position player or a pitcher that was kind of like, well, oh, I think geez. it's interesting. <laughs> I forgot we had him on that 95 That team. list of players. And it's, it's almost a who's who of either had really good careers 
as major league ball players across the board. And some of them went on to even better stuff. I mean, John Farrell had some pretty good years as a manager. Uh, Jason Grimsley was the one who stole back Albert Bell's court bat. Oral Hershiser was a beast. Dennis Martinez was fantastic. Uh, Charles mm-hmm. Nagy put in a lot of good years for us. I loved Paul Shuey as a kid. Um, I mean, in Brian Giles, I mean, oh, a lot yeah. of people I mean, forget you, that you, How can you not love Paul Shuey? And I, I'm going to pull up his stats and stuff to see what that trade mm-hmm. was that we made to send him to the Pirates. Oh, Rin- Ricardo Rincon. Wow. Yep. Yep. That was um, – I kind of I kind of wish you kept Brian Giles on that one, to be honest with you. Well, but you think about <laughs> we would end up that getting one, uh, for yeah. Ricardo Rincon when we traded that him to Oakland. Uh, true. Very true. That is very true. It's one. It's one of those tree things that we want to do this off season, where it's like, so we, you know, move Giles for Rincon. Who do we get for Rincon to Oakland and that? Yeah. So I get what you're saying. We did get some guys from Oakland though, so that was an interesting move for the, for that for sure. Um, but sorry, was um, there anyone else that you? Were I, I knew like, we had some oh, of okay. these guys. I mean, <laughs> I forgot we David had Bell. That was a. Uh, you know, he's part of a legendary Cleveland Indians family. Um, I always forget that Billy Ripken played for the team for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, best known as being Cal Ripken's brother, which has got to be really tough. And, you know, it's a lot of. Yeah. Yeah, he, he only played. He only, I yeah, mean, he only played eight games. Shadow Jail was part of that. So. A really tragic boating accident during spring training in '93. Yeah, that was, um, yeah. Wait, '93. I know. No, he didn't die in the boating accident. Oh, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I forgot he was part of the boat thing. I forgot he was part of the boat accident, but he didn't die. Oh, geez, I'm yeah, at a loss for oh, That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think of who the other Indians pitcher was who passed in that accident. Um, Tim Cruz. Um, Tim Cruz. I got you. Uh, oh, no, I'm, I'm wrong. wrong. It's uh, completely different. Tim Cruz, yeah. It was Bob Ojeda. Yeah, well, yeah. Cause I'm I, sorry. Yeah, I thought Chad oh, yeah. Oh, no, it was Bob. O- That's all I was saying. Like I, I got, yeah, yeah, I, I know it was, it was Chad. Yeah. I'm looking. I'm looking in that so Jim Ingram really book. Yeah, that. I just read the, the name. Sounded, yeah, I was looking familiar. At the names, yeah. Okay, I was going to say like I like I don't remember Chad O'J being on that book, but yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, for the fact that he was part of that insane mm-hmm. rotation, but you always think of. You know, Nagy, Her- Hershiser, and Martinez. You kind of overlooked Chad because of the season he had at 20. I mean, he was 24 on a team with guys who were 41 in Martinez. Hershiser was 36. 
you know, Nagy was 28 at the time. I mean, yep. <laughs> Chad was like the fifth guy in that rotation for the Indians. It's crazy. Um, Amari, any names that I listed off kind of stood out to you? Were like, wait, what? <laughs> he was an Indian that year. Like, is there is there any yeah? So know, there's a couple names that popped out that to you? I always uh, kind of forget about. Uh, one of them I don't necessarily forget about, but it's just like we talked about Manny Ramirez. It's kind of like, wow, he actually played for us. So the first one is <clears throat> Oral Hershiser, because I often think about his time with the Dodgers. Uh, you know, he won a World Series in 88, was a Cy Young Award winner, mm-hmm. uh, multiple all-star appearances. Um, but uh, another one is Tony Pena. You talk about another Hall of Famer uh, and pretty legendary within baseball circles. I know he's been with the mm-hmm. Yankees in some capacity or another for decades. Um, and then when I think about Tony Pena, you, you, some people may forget, but you yeah. think about that walk-off home run against the Red Sox in 95, um, and we ended up sweeping them. Um, so even though he, he his offense may not have been good that yep. year, uh, he definitely came through when he needed to and uh, helped this team, you know, beat the Red Sox, who have pretty much always been good. And we talk about the, you know, Red Sox and Indians. I think about 07 um, a lot, so it hurts. <laughs> but we were able to uh, sweep them that <laughs> year. I think we also swept them in 16. But, um, yeah, so Tony Pena and Hershey are definitely two of the names that I go, you know, I pause at because, you know, I kind of forget that they play for us. Yeah, you can go back to what you said with Tony Pena. Uh, he was 38 that year in 91 games. He had 279 play appearances, uh, 69 hits, uh, 15 doubles, 5 home runs, 28 RBIs. Uh, he had an average of 262. His slash line, 302, 376, and 679. Then looking at Oral Hershiser, he was 36 that season. 16-6 uh, and six record. Uh, 387 ERA, uh, 26 games. He had a complete game, had a shutout pitch in 167 in the third innings. Uh, gave up 72 runs, uh, struck out 111 batters that season. And then his uh, ERA plus was 121, uh, and his whip was 1.207 for that season. Um, but yeah. It's crazy to think that we had Oral Hershiser at the time for a couple seasons. And yeah, like you said, everyone thinks of like him with the Dodgers and all that. But the fact that the Indians had him for that 95 season was pretty big for me. I would say a guy that I kind of forget that we had at one point was, you know, you know Paul Ossenmacher Austin, uh, because of the fact that, you know, he was a pretty decent pitcher in his own right. So I think before he was with the Indians, he was actually with the New York Yankees. Um, he had a career 13 war, 61 wins, uh, 44 losses, and with a career area of 353. But for that season, in 95, he was 6-2 and two, with a 2.82 ERA, uh, appeared in 47 games, uh, pitched in 38 in the third innings, gave up 12 runs, struck out 40, uh, his ERA plus was 167, and his WHIP was 1.148. So I always forget that we had Austin Mocker at one point, who was a pretty you know good reliever for you know a bunch of teams. And I, 
I know some Indians might some Indians fans might be like, how can you forget about this guy? I forgot we had Wayne Kirby yeah, on the Indians right at one point. Like <laughs> that year, he was thirty. He, yeah, he was thirty-one that season, played in one hundred and one games, uh, thirty-nine hits and one hundred eighty-eight at bats. Um, you know, one home run, fourteen RBIs, hit two oh seven that year, and his slash line was two sixty, two ninety-eight, and five fifty-eight. So I mean, yeah, he played in a hundred. He played in over a hundred games that year, and I completely forgot we had Wayne Kirby. On the Indians, so that goes to show you just how, just how stacked that offense was. And then you look at the bench guys you had, like I said, Wayne Kirby, Herbert Perry, Dave Winfield, um, you know Billy Ripken, Brian Giles, Jeremy Burnett, and David Bell. You have so many guys that you're like, I can't believe we even had them at one point because the names that everyone, if you ask any Indians fan, they, like list that lineup for '95. Without going looking at your GV art T-shirt, you know, no free ads. It it would have the entire lineup right. It has the lineup on the shirt. You can see it's you know Lofton, Biscell, Bayerga, Bell, uh, you know Eddie Murray, you know Sorrento. I think Tommy Ramirez and um, Sandy Alomar Jr. Because you can just name that entire list right there just because that's how stacked this team was and. You look at the '95 season; it was a you know it was a shortened season because of the strike. The Indians, it was a 144 game season, and the Indians won 100 games that year. <laughs> they won 100 games in a 144 game season, and they won the whole division by 30 games. Like they ended, they I think they ended in like like early September. That's how dominant this team was, and they led in basically every offensive category. You know, home runs, RBIs, you know, on base percentage slugging, it's just everything. That's just how good this team was. And you look at, you know, how good the offense was, you almost got to look at how good the rotation was. You know, Dennis Martinez, 12-5, and 308 ERA. Charles Nagy, 16-6, and 6, 455. Earl Horsheiser, 16-6, and 6, 387. Mark Clark, you know, a name that no one probably even remembers on that team. Nine and seven, five twenty-seven. Chad OJ, eight and three with a three oh five. And Ken Hill, three. Uh, he's four and one with a three ninety-eight ERA. If you look at the main guys out of that bullpen, Paul Ossemacher, six and two. Jim Poole was three and three with a three seventy-five. Eric Plunk, six and two with a two sixty-seven ERA. Julian Tavares, uh, ten and two. With a 2.44 ERA as a 22-year-old, and you have Jose Mesa, 3 and 0 that season with a 1.13 ERA, and he had 46 saves that season, which was the is the Cleveland Indians' record for one season in saves. I mean, Tom, when you just look at this team, you know everyone talks about the offense, but you like let me ask you something about. How underrated was this rotation and this bullpen for the Indians in '95? Because all you hear about how is how prolific that offense was when you had so many guys go to the All Star game. But you look at the bullpen and the rotation, you're just like, how do these guys not get as much love as the? Well, I don't think that any did. any of the just starters the really had what you would consider by modern standards to be 
a monster year. I think the starting pitching did enough to get the job done, but you can give up runs if you're scoring a ton. Okay, Jose Besa, sure. Um, Ottenmacher, all right. But when you really boil it down, the reason that this rotation and bullpen gets overlooked is because it wasn't their strong suit. They had enough pitching to get by. They had enough pitching to be effective, but you're really just counting on a very power-heavy lineup. Well, and these guys could hit for average, too. I mean, look at those guys. You know, Sandy hit 300. Manny hit 308. Eddie Murray hit 323. Kenny hit 310. Prince Albert hit 317. Tommy and Bayerga hit 314. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold up. All right, I got breaking news, guys. New York Times just dropped a bomb. A tweet from Michael S. Schmidt, exclusive. For the past 105 years, the team was called the Indians. That will be no more as Cleveland has decided to change its name. Announcement from team could come as early as this week. You didn't tell me David Wallstein. You didn't tell me anything. Holy smokes. All right. Okay, it's a little bit of news. This is – I'm sorry. I don't need to tell you off this. I'm just, I'm just saying this. I'm just, I just got the tweet from this. It's like I said, it's just, it's breaking. Um, all right, so here's, jeez, <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah, so they're looking at, well, of course, I have to. Okay, uh, Cleveland could announce its plans as soon as this week, according to three people who spoke on condition of the anonymity because they were not authorized to speak publicly on the matter. It is not immediately clear that Indians' exact steps will be beyond dropping the name. The transition to a new name involves many logistical considerations, including work with uniform manufacturers and companies that produce other team equipment and stadium signage. One of the people said Cleveland planned to keep the Indians' name in uniforms for the 21 season while working to shift away from it as early as 2022. So, uh, let's see. Uh, one option that the team is considering, two of the people said, is moving forward without a replacement name, similar to how the Washington football team proceeded, then coming up with a new name in consultation with the public. Uh, the Indians franchise has been known as the Indians since 1915. You know, blah, 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 all that same stuff. So, we're looking at a possible change as soon as... 2022 possibly so holy crap <laughs> so i didn't mean to drop breaking news on you tom and amari but this is i'm just really surprised i'm surprised this actually has happened because we we just thought that the indians were possibly going to change because the blackhawks weren't changing their name in the nhl but what the indians are possibly doing it i mean amari what are your thoughts on this man like let's start off with you like what are your thoughts on this bomb well, that's, got dropping the show. that's why we love doing what we do but to answer the question, um, yes, it's kind sir. of bittersweet. I can imagine that this may or may not be what fans of the Washington football team were going through, where you know your your team as one name, 
uh, your whole life and multiple generations. But, um, and I wrote about this a couple months ago, you know, maybe it is time to change the name because um, somebody like Bamani Jones, uh, whose work I follow, who famously wore love the shirts. Cleveland Caucasian shirt on air a, a couple years ago, um, just to put a different spin on what exactly yeah, what we're that. doing when we call uh, sports teams by their Native American mascots. Um, and to me, if one Native American has a problem with it or one tribe, then that should be enough to change what we know these teams as because it isn't fair to them that their very way of life and their images are being used and profited off of um, in sports, which we know in this country is very big. Um, so it'll be very bittersweet um, to, for the team to no longer be known as the Cleveland Indians um, because it'll also just be weird to know them as any anything else. Like, I think when we talked about what the potential names may have been a couple months ago, um, people seem to love the Cleveland Spiders. Um, me personally, I'm not all too hung up on the Spiders nickname, but literally every other nickname just does not sound right. And it's because we don't know this team, at least people our ages and our generations don't know this this team by any other name uh, than they've been since, what, 1908. So um, it'll be bittersweet, but... Uh, yeah. It was 1915, but yeah, I get what you're saying. And the thing is, with the spider, with the Spiders, though, they were a 100-loss mm-hmm. team the last time they were actually at the name of the ball club. And, and or well, the club before they were the names that have some type of So there's a lot of And Spiders just does not do it for the city of Cleveland. I don't think any mm-hmm. city, really. Um, so, like I said, we don't know what the name will be, and it'll be weird for a couple years to call them anything other than what we've known them as for the past 100 years. Yeah, because I've seen Guardians get brought up. I've seen, you know, people making cases for maybe bringing, like, the, um, the Naps back or there's a been a bu- there's been a bunch of different things. I always see Spiders. I see, like I said, I've seen Guardians get thrown out there. I mean, it's just it, – it's, it's a whole lot of different stuff, and it's just crazy that it's actually going to happen. It's just now are we looking at – are we looking at the Indians in 2021, or are we looking at the Cleveland Baseball Club? And when, the, like you said, when it does change, now it's like okay, now you got to get a whole new set of you know, you know, merchandise, you know, for your collection, you know. So look, even if, I don't know if people even would, to be honest, there might be some of like, well, I have to get some because you know it's a new team now. You got to kind of rock the new stuff. So you got new, you know, hats, hoodies, t-shirts, jerseys. Stuff like that. So it's gonna be interesting, like you said, who what they're gonna be like if it is 2022 is when the team name changes and what happens to the name for next season and then uniforms and signage and everything else. It's just it's just crazy to think that it's actually gonna happen if this is if this New York Times article is actually legit and that the Indians are gonna change their name. It's surprising that you have three people within I don't know if it's the actual organization or people who are around it that have huge connections that have said anonymously that this is going to happen. 
It's just what is the timeline and what's the thing going to be like? If there's an announcement this week, we might have to maybe do an emergency podcast possibly if we if this is an actual legit thing. I mean, Tom, what are your thoughts overall with this you know huge bomb that's got dropped? I'm a fan of the ball New York club. Times. I'm not married to the name. Uh, I've been enough of a, I think a amateur historian of the team to know that there have been other names. You know, we were the Bluebirds or the Blues. We were the Cleveland Broncos. We were the Cleveland Naps. I mean, hell, they were the Cleveland Lakeshores for 1900, you know, when the American League wasn't founded and they'd moved the team from Grand Rapids to Cleveland out of the Western League. Yeah. So it's... And... And we also have, you know, we have the you know, the, uh, the uh, Negro League teams where we have like, you know, the Cleveland Buckeyes and a whole slew of other names, too, and stuff like that. And even, like, you know, the Cleveland Spiders was the National League team before they folded. So we've had a million different names, if it's not just with the Indians franchise now, but just with other, you know, leagues like the National League or a semi-pro team or the Negro Leagues and all that stuff. So, yeah, it's... It's not, it's not something new within the organization, but yeah, it's definitely a huge change. You're talking about 105 years of the Indians. Now it's looking like I just, I don't know. I that's not going to be the thing. I guess maybe I'm coming from a position of privilege, but I, I don't, I don't see it as that big of a deal. I don't see it as that big of an issue. Um, I, I definitely side very strongly with Amari on this issue. I, I think it's, I think it's time, you know, I'm, I'm interested to see how things actually develop because, you know, listening to you talk about that, it's three unnamed sources. And when you really listen to the meat and potatoes of what that announcement really was, the change isn't happening overnight. You know, this is something that at least unlike the Washington football team, you know, they're not just making this as a spur of the moment thing. They're going to take their time and do this right. I think one of the things that Dan Snyder really missed was having another team name or two in his pocket. And granted, I'm sure it's, for that particular organization, it's hard because you probably have to buy the rights mm-hmm. to names from different. You're going to have to buy the rights to the name from somebody because, like in Washington's case, that's been a conversation for years. And really, with with the Indians, it's no different. I mean, you think about well, you know, the '95 World Series. There were Native American groups who protested that because it was a World Series between the Indians and the Braves and they felt that it denigrated their way of life and their identity as people. So, I mean, I'm here for it. I think there's better names than the spiders. Um, I hope, I hope fans take this seriously because I think it's a, a momentous occasion, but I'm, I'm certainly not going to get all, been out of shape when it happens you know and again that article 
they didn't tell me anything substantial. You're just hearing scuttlebutt. You're just hearing people, you know, kind of softly come out of the woodwork. So uh, yeah, it's overdue. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. And, I mean, I, th- I think it's a definitely it's a unique situation because if you look at teams like the national, you know, the Washington team, I guess, yeah, that it was a spur-in-the-moment thing. Uh, that name was always an issue for a lot of people a long time. Some people did have an issue with the Blackhawks, but with the, the connections the Blackhawks have with the Native American groups over there and stuff like that, that name's not really going to get changed because the Blackhawks have come out and said that that's not going to happen. You know, you got Florida State with the Seminoles. You know, the Seminoles, the Seminole group is out of the Panhandle area, so I think that they have a they have an understanding how that works with them as well. I just think that the Indians' problem was always the, I think it was always Chief Wahoo because it was a caricature. Um, the name, I can see where both of you are coming from. It's like, and I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you guys or saying that oh it's not racist. I mean, I get where you're both coming from. It's it's definitely a unique situation for the Indians because, like I said, with the Seminoles and the Blackhawks, you got actual tribes and actual guys who are named Chief Blackhawk and stuff like that. That's a different that's a different thing with those two teams in general. The what the Redskins, yeah, that was that you know that name was just beyond racist and that was just a no go on that. Even though there was an artist who wasn't even American who made the logo, but just the name didn't really work. For that team, I'm, you know, I'm not like I said. I'm not saying it's not racist or disagreeing with you guys. It's just that's what's been told. And that's what it, you know. That's what's been said. You know, like how the all that got shaped up. I think with the Indians, it's definitely an interesting situation. Now, will it be an adjustment to get used to? On from I, I'm speaking for myself. Will it be an adjustment? Yeah, because you know that's the team that you know all three of us have grown up with our our whole lives. Is you know. You know, it's the name that we all grew up with and stuff like that. And it's just something that we've all known. Um, it's just... I, it's just going to be more of an adjustment than anything else. Now, I know... Yeah, p- people will still be buying, you know, merchandise and tickets and, you know, stuff like that. I mean, no one's going to say no to the baseball team. Um, but... It's something that is going to be a big adjustment for everyone. And um, I think it's something that we're going to have to keep an eye on for sure as, you know, 2021 goes on and, you know, ramping up for 2022 and that, you know, when we get ready for that season to come up and how that's going to look. Um, so I think it'll be a different interesting situation. So, um, Amari, do you have, you know, anything that you want to, plug real quick because i know i know you're you know i know you're a writer you do a blog and articles and stuff like that is there anything you want to hit up real quick you want to you want to put out there real quick for our fans to check out possibly you know to get you know your perspective in more of like a written form is there anything you want to plug real quick before we get back to the 95 uh, team the the mcpherson post and i'll send you guys the link and you can share it on the main page um on, on my blog back in july i wrote about it being time to change the name, whether we like it or not, just because it's the right thing to do. 
and people want to complain about you know people being more politically correct nowadays but being politically correct isn't such a bad thing if you take into account um the values of other human beings who we all want the same thing at the end of the day because we live in a country of freedom so why should native americans still to this day be subjected to having their likeness used as mascots um and a lot, I think a lot of people want to use the excuse that, um, I forget his name, but uh, Louis Sock Alexis back in the 1900s, um, you know, we used the Indian's name to honor him. But it wasn't so much of an honor because mm-hmm. even even during his time on his team, it's not like he was yeah. regarded as some, you know, super popular athlete because at the end of the day, he was a minority. So that's one misconception that, you know, I just wanted to get out there. But, yeah, I wrote yeah. my blog back in June. Uh, I would love it if people could check it out because I think it gives um, a little bit more insight and meaning to why team names should be changed. Because um, at the end of the day, like you said, we're all going to be buying tickets to the games. We're all going to be buying merchandise. No one's going to care five to ten years from now that the the, the name is different we're going to love this team the same because we should all still be happy that we even have a team because I know from, for three years, this is a football city. We didn't even have the Browns and Seattle is still trying to get their basketball team back. Um, So I think we should all just, you know, take a deep breath. It's still going to be the same team, the same players. The jerseys are just going to be a little bit different um, and move on from there because it's not such a bad thing to, take into account the feelings and values of other people that also live in this country. Right, for sure. No, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, if you think about it, too, there was even a point in the 80s, you know, where the Indians, I think it was in the 70s and 80s, the, team, the Indians were almost shipped to a different city because just attendance was so abysmal. You're getting less than 800,000 a season. You're getting like 5,000 fans to a game in a stadium. You know, we all know what Cleveland Municipal was like. It was like a basically like a cavern, you know, 80,000 seats and all that, and you're barely getting 5,000 a game. I mean, we almost lost the Indians at one point. <laughs> like, think if we didn't have baseball and foot. Like, see if the Browns left after the – like, let's say the Indians left and then the Browns left, you would have had the Cavs in the 90s. And the Cavs weren't really that great of a team in the 90s, other than, you know, when they had Mark Price and Brad Doherty and all that. But there could have been a time where we had one pro team in Cleveland, and that would have been basketball. So, yeah, like you said, like, to have the Indians when we did was so great. And that's what, you know, like, that's what we're talking about the 95 team, because the 94 team started it, but then the 95 team really shot this team up. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting situation. I would maybe throw out the name, like, maybe like the Cleveland Rockers. You know, I know they used to be a former WNBA team, but I mean, be kind of cool to bring a Rockers name back because the fact that you have the Hall of Fame right there, you know, rock and roll's you know pretty huge up in Northeast Ohio. You know, you got you know you got Michael Stanley Band and all of them. It's you know you got the Black Keys in Akron. I think we kind of cool maybe to bring the Rockers name, you know, in, into baseball. I mean, Tom, what do you think about that as a possible name for the Dude, Indian I think we just like Guardians or Spiders. Like, how do you feel um, about the Rockers being in I'm, I'm not even. 
yeah, absolutely. I mean, right. I mean, I'm just, I'm just, it's, it's, an it's just a hypothetical. Pays but. homage to the rich history of rock and roll in the city of Cleveland. Uh, the, as you guys may know, I'm, I'm a huge rock and roll fan. I love going to the Rock Hall. I think it's you know, one of the coolest things, even if it's the antithesis of, you know, uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame where not a lot of people get left out. <laughs> Sometimes you have probably more acts getting in than you think, and it's in a lot of ways a more political thing because of, you know, how you <laughs> – how your relationship was with Jan, Jan Wenner, but it's, it could be cool. Like I said, I'm, I'd like to wait and see how a lot of this shakes out. Cause I, I just read the article again and it really didn't tell me anything substantive other than something that we've known for months. And that was that the change is coming, be ready for it. The change is coming, be ready for it and embrace it. Um, if, if you do an economic, look of how the state of Ohio really is and how, you know, major league professional sports teams are traditionally located in their, you know, number one city in the state. You know, you, uh, it, it, all of your major league teams should be in Columbus and Cleveland should be the minor league town. The only reason that you don't have that is because it's got the serious history behind you know, the Browns and they, they seem to be former Cleveland Indians um, because Columbus is a city that's experiencing, you know, consistent growth every year. Cleveland's population yeah. is, you know, slowly decreasing by one or 2% every year. So, I mean, it, be grateful that they're not moving the team. Be grateful that the league's not taking our team away. I mean, it's all good. Yeah. Yeah, I get you. Um, yeah, real quick, Amari, what are your thoughts on the Rockers um, the I like it, man, just um, and I was a Rockers fan back when I was a kid with the WNBA, and I hope they give us another team. Um, but I, I, I'm also a fan of the Guardians, but I feel that's a little bit more generic. But even with the Rockers nickname, I feel like I feel like Clevelanders have kind of got this little fatigue when it comes to the rock and roll connection, because we all understand, yeah, we have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame downtown, but when it comes to marketing, it seems like that's kind of the, the easy picking, the, the yeah. low-hanging fruit. Um, we talk about both All-Star games, MLB All-Star games, 97 and um, last season, both had rock and roll imagery. Uh, the WNBA team was called the Rockers. Um, you know, so I, I think there's a little bit of fatigue. I feel like we could be a, a little bit more original True. when it comes to a nickname, especially for something that's going to be so permanent um soon so uh, like i said i haven't i haven't found one that yeah. really sticks out to me other than guardian uh but that even that one's a little bit generic yeah yeah i mean you know that's why they have guys like you know nick ambone and everyone in the director of you know in, you know creative design department and you, know, you got the 
study groups and, you know, the GMs, the owners. I mean, I wouldn't put that much faith in the Dolans, but, you know, we got people in the right position to, you know, figure out a good name for the Indians whenever that's decided. It could be 2022. It could be a little bit after that. I guess it all really depends, but, you know, had to, had to drop that quick bomb because it just popped up on my Twitter timeline. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like, I had, to bring, I had to bring that up, so, yeah. So thank you to all those who bared with us for that, you know, that little segue, you know, that little, you know, off-track discussion we just had talking about that. But going back to the 95 Indians, I mean, like I said, the team won 100 games, you know, made the playoffs, you know, stuff like that. You know, they, like what Amari said, they did play the Red Sox, swept them in three games, you know, that huge game that um, Tony Pena had got the walk-off in the late innings, you know, then – you know, we go to the Mariners, and that was something that the Indians were kind of like, holy crap, we're going to play the Mariners at the Sky Dome. you got Randy Johnson and all that. And you know the one game that everyone wants to talk about is the one that the Indians won that clinched in the spot in the World Series. I mean, Tom, let me start with you real quick. What are your – like? Beat me. I was I know, less than a year old. I don't know how old you were back in 95. I mean, I was four at the time. You probably weren't even born then, or maybe you were. I don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, but just looking back at, like, old highlights or stories that you've heard from, like, maybe your folks or other people in general, like, what are your what, like, what are your thoughts on that Mariner series and the fact that just the, the instincts of Kane Lofton on a pass ball to go from second to home that would potentially lead to the Indians clinching their first AL pennant in 41 years to go to the World Series. Was it 41? I think it was 41. I, I know it was forever, but like, what are your thoughts about that series with the Mariners? I think that exactly that personifies with everything Kenny that Kenny Lofton became known for as a professional baseball player. Heads up base running. He's willing to take a chance. It's smart. It's calculated. And that's that's kind of a play that's indoctrinated in young baseball players. You you teach your catcher, listen, if we got a deep backstop, pass ball gets behind you, you gotta be moving. And pitchers, you gotta be hustling to cover and you have to be ready. I mean, and if you look at the the video, it Randy Johnson didn't really, you know, get there in a in a huge hurry. I, I can't think of the name of the catcher from that game, but he didn't really, you know, hustle it up. And Kenny's paying attention to that. He's got a read on that. I'm sure there's a scouting report on that somewhere in somebody's file. I mean, it's just good heads-up base running. You know, don't stop. Listen, if you see that something's going and you think you can make the play, force somebody to make a mistake. Force somebody yeah. to rush your throat. It's why they teach guys to hustle out of the box. It's one of the things that has frustrated me sometimes about some Indians players who are speedy. Listen, you hit a ground ball in the infield, hustle it out. Come out of that box hard. Force somebody to make a bad throw. Yeah. No, you're totally right, and that's just heads up, locks, and doing what he does best. I mean, Amari, what are your thoughts about you know just 
that game with Kenny Lofton and just, you know, that playoff run that they had, you know, going and getting that, you know, American League pennant for the first time in over 40 years. Like, what are your thoughts about just how crazy that series with the Mariners was? And for the fact, you know, we did touch about the Red Sox a little bit and we swept them and then, you know, with the whole thing with the Mariners. Like, what are your thoughts about that one game that everyone remembers with the Mariners and Kenny Lofton? Just uh, I think doing it was what he does a best. little microcosm of this team as a whole because um, we're never really out of it. You can never really count on this team to just bow out. Um, and a little bit coincidentally, we talk about the Mariners. It kind of reminds me of, um, I forget what year it was, but King Griffey Jr. Uh, against the, the, the Yankees um, scored that run coming around third base from, from second base. I'll score that winning run to give them the series. Um, we talk about cities losing teams. Seattle was going to lose the Mariners, um, and they found a little bit of rejuvenation with, with Ken Griffey Jr. and the Mariners going on that little run. Um, and obviously they, they are still in Seattle. But um, that 95 year, that playoffs and that, that championship series, I don't want to say that people didn't think that we would beat the Mariners, but I think it might have been a pleasant surprise just because we hadn't been successful in such a long time that it was kind of a, a breath of fresh air. And, of course, somebody like Kenny Lawson, who's been a staple on this team, uh, to do what he did and, and come through for us to give us that victory. And we win in, in six. We don't even make it seven games. And on to the next one. Yeah, no, and definitely for sure. And speaking of on to the next one, we actually have, you know, the you know, the Indians made it to the ninety five World Series against the Atlanta Braves, who basically had a really solid, you know, if you have a really good offense, well, that sometimes you get shut down by a really good pitch elite elite hitting against elite pitching. You know, one of those two has to stop the other force and unfortunately it's just the Braves had that rotation to do, and looking you know, through that six-game series, you know, game one, in, uh, the Braves won 3-2. Greg Maddox was the winning pitcher of that game against Oral Hershiser. That was uh, game one. Uh, game two, 4-3 uh, Braves. That was Tom Glavin doing Tom Glavin things against uh, Dennis Martinez. Uh, game three, the Indians won an 11, 7-6. Uh, Jose Mesa got the win in that game. Game four, Braves 5-2, Steve Avery over Ken Hill. Uh, game five, the Indians won. Uh, it was Hershiser against Greg Maddox. Jose Mesa got his uh, second save of the series, you know, getting that win, um, you know, locking that win up for the Indians. And unfortunately, you know, game six, the Braves won one nothing on, you know, another, you know, Tom Glavin doing Tom Glavin stuff. And if you look at, you know, the Braves, you know, you look at the roster, you know, just the hitting aspect of the team. You have Rafael Belliard, Marquise Grisham, Chipper Jones, David Justice, Ryan Klesko, Matt Lem uh, Mark Lemke, Javi Lopez, Fred McGriff. Um, I mean, you're not talking about a super heavy stacked hitting lineup. I mean, you got Grisham, Jones, Justice, and McGriff. Out of those guys, you're not really talking about a super huge 
really fantastic offense, but you had a rotation of you know Avery, Schmoltz, Maddox, and Glavin. It was just a great equalizer. And also, unfortunately, the umpires had ridiculous strike zones. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, it's if you look back at any of the 95 footage, you can see that the Indians pitchers almost had no strike zone. And the uh, Braves pitchers, the strike zones were absolutely outrageous. I mean, Amari, I'm going to start with you on this one, man. Like, what are your thoughts just overall with the World Series in general, just to the fact that, yeah, the Braves had a, a ridiculously good pitching staff and their offense was kind of mediocre, but do you think that, like, maybe the umpires kind of gave that one to the Braves in a sense? Like, what are your thoughts overall, just as an aspect of that whole World Series? Um, I won't say that the, the umpires gave the Braves that series, but, you know, we mentioned their pitching. When your pitching is that good, you're you're going to get certain calls that other pitchers won't get. And the Braves, I mean, they were the team of the 90s. Um, and here we are, the hotshot Indians, in our first um, real postseason success in decades. So um, I think back to an interview that Hershiser gave, uh, gave a couple years ago where it's kind of like they, they're waiting – and waiting, and then next thing you know, they blink, and they're, you're down two games to nothing against the, the Braves and their pitching. Um, so I think it was kind of a gut punch, really. You know, uh, people talk about you don't really know how to win it unless you've been there, and the Indians had not been there, of course, except for some people. But the Indians as a whole hadn't really been in that spotlight and seen that kind of success in a long time, and we're going up against the Braves of all teams, like – how more unlucky could you get? Um, so I think overall, I think it was definitely a teaching lesson. We did stretch it six games. But, um, yeah, I mean, we gave it all we had. And, you know, the better team won, arguably. Well, I don't know. I, I get what you're saying, man. Like, Tom, what are your thoughts? I'm a big Tom Glavin fan, just as a baseball fan in general. Uh, I was a huge fan of the book uh, Living on the Black, which was about, you know, his road to 300 wins and his life. And it also talks about Mike Messina. Um, and Glavin made his living pitching that way. So I think it's a little unfair to the umpires in that series to say, oh, my gosh, it only happened for these six games. Because it wasn't those six games. It happened more than that. But it was because he established that he could throw strikes early. You talk about some of the walks that Carlos Santana had, had drawn as a Cleveland Indian. Were there borderline pitches that he got – Yes, he drew balls because people know he has an exquisite eye. He knows what's a strike and what isn't. And as an umpire, you're more likely to give that guy the benefit of the doubt um, about where the spot is. So it's and it's just adjusting. You know, Tom Glavin made a living being a fairly tough guy to hit because he may not have had a dominant fastball, but he could move the ball around. 
listen, he got beat by Greg Maddox once. I mean, that guy's one of the greatest pitchers of the 80s and the 90s. Smoltz was no slouch himself. And for game four, there was talk that Bobby Cox wasn't even going to go with Steve Avery. And it worked out for him. Um, I I think I disagree with you a little bit, Zach, on your assessment of the lineup. I, just because those guys could get hits when it mattered. Sure, they might not have put up a lot of you know, sexy numbers like other teams in the 90s did. When you Like you talk about the Indians had several players hit over 300. But ultimately, it doesn't matter if you don't get a hit when it matters. And David Justice was good at that. Marquise Grissom, fantastic at that. Uh, young Chipper Jones, fantastic with that. Fred McGriff could get a hit when it mattered. So it... Yeah, Chipper and Chipper Jones was a rookie of the year. I'm not saying it was like the worst roster for hitters and saying I'm just, it's just if you look past the couple of names that they had like with Justice McGriff, you know, Chipper Jones and Grisham, it wasn't you know it wasn't a lineup that you're like, okay, they're gonna, you know, blow the doors down or stuff like that. It's just I'm not saying it's just the pitching that it was all the umpires. You ask certain Indians, there's guys who've said that like yeah, that that series kind of was not really the you know it's the umpires did help the Braves a little bit more than the Indians. So it's I'm not going off this base of you know just you know being salty. It's just there's guys who come out and said it, but I'm not taking away anything that Maddox or Schmoltz or Glavin did because those guys were you know hall. You got three Hall of Famers right there, and that's how good they were. I'm not taking anything away from them. It's just there are certain moments where the umpires did kind of play it a little bit into not giving the Indians a certain calls that the guys with the Braves are getting. So, I mean, I get what you're saying, Tom, and the more I get what you're saying, too, it's just it was just unfortunate the Indians met an elite pitching staff that the Braves had at the time. And for the fact that the Braves got hits when they did and the Indians kind of sat back and then got aggressive, it's just, it was a whole it was a whole huge thing that was just it was just unfortunate circumstances it was just the time that the Indians of that ninety five team had with facing a Braves team that, you know, was just that good. So let me ask you this, Tom. Do you think the nineteen ninety five Indians are probably the best team to not win a World Series? And do you think that they're the best Indians team ever? in terms of just offense and pitching. I know we're talking about teams like the 1920 World Series Indians and the 48 Indians, and then the 54 Indians who made it to the World Series but lost to the then New York Giants. So do you think that this 95 team is the best to never win it and also a team that could be the best ever in I terms think they're of up. Cleveland Indians overall as – I think in terms of best Indians teams of all time, I think they're certainly in consideration. Um, yeah, they had a pretty stacked lineup, but I, I don't know that their pitching compares to 
1944. Um, I think there have been better teams even than the Indians in 95 that didn't win a World Series. I mean, we could probably do just an entire episode on teams that were that close to winning and just it didn't happen. I mean, you look at a team that hit 291 as a team for 144 games, they hit 179 in that World Series. It just an inopportune moment for your bats to get cold, but that's why you play the games. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. I mean, Amari, what are your thoughts? Do you think this is the best team that never won a World Series? And do you think this is possibly the best Indians team overall if you compare it to the teams of, like, 20, 48, and 54? And let's say even, like, the 97 team and, you know, 99 and 2001 and all that. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I, just like Tom said, I think they're in, like, consideration. Um they're up there, but I, I don't think I can definitively give them, you know, the best team to not win it or the best Cleveland Indians team. Um, I would agree with Tom, the the 1948 team, and I, I may have some recency bias with the 16 team just because they were so fun to watch and they were never really out of games and the pitching was so dominant. And once we got on base, base pass, we, you know, you really couldn't get us off and we create runs from stealing bases and taking extra bases like that. Um, but I do think they're in consideration just when you look at the roster as a whole. Um, hindsight is twenty twenty, and you look at that roster and go, man, how did they not win it, you know? Um, but we got mm-hmm. the, you know, luck of the draw and got the, got the Braves in the World Series that year. Um, but definitely, I would say one of the best to not win it, and definitely one of the best Cleveland Indian teams. But I don't think I can give a definitive yes as to they are the best to not win it. Yeah, and I, I get I get what you guys saying, and I think for me, I couldn't say that they're the best team ever because, like you said, you had the you had the forty eight team with Lou Boudreau and Bob Feller. And what they did to win the World Series in '48, but then you look at the '54 team. I mean, they had a 720. You know, they were a 721 team. I mean, you would have to say that those two teams are probably the best the Indians ever had. I, you, you could say the '95 team is probably in the top five of all-time Indians teams. You could maybe even say the top three if you're not adding the 1920 World Series team. I would definitely say this team is top five for sure. But the best, I don't really see that happening. There might be some people now who, you know, from the 80s to now, that might say, well, yeah, the 95 Indians were that's just that good that, unfortunately, they didn't, you know, they are the best team the Indians ever had or probably the best team that never won it. So it's, it's definitely an interesting argument. I would love to do a deep dive more, you know, sometime this offseason of really good teams that never won it and then maybe have a discussion of, like, comparing – this 95 team to teams like maybe the Mariners team who won, like I think was like what, 116 games. They didn't win it. I mean, you've had a bunch, you know, you had all these recent Dodgers teams that never won a World Series. So I think it'd be an interesting discussion um, for us to have sometime in the offseason. 
to compare the 95 team in terms of, you know, how they were compared to other teams who haven't won a World Series. Well, even in, so, even with Indians teams, you talk about the 1920 team. I don't even know that they were the best team that year. Uh, if it wasn't for the the Black Sox scandal, the Indians arguably don't even go to that World Series because Charlie Comiskey suspended the eight players that were involved in 1919. They lost a bunch of games at the end, and Cleveland went four and two to go to the series. Uh, the 1940 Indians were a fantastic team. Uh, and the Indians, by and large, weren't really bad in the 50s. It just, you just couldn't get over the hump. No, I mean, if you, yeah, because like you said, you had the 1954 team that, you know, that was really good. And then what really just started going downhill for the Indians was, you know, <laughs> the Rocky Calavino trade, which I think we have to do a whole. We would need to do a whole episode just on rock, that that trade for rock, that that involved Rocky Calavito and all the crazy nonsense that happened afterwards. I mean, just that's you know the the Red Sox had you know the Babe you know the curse of Babe Ruth and you know the Cubs had that long streak of 108 you know 100 and something years and the Indians are kind of you know. They had that long stretch of being really bad after they got rid of you know Rocky Calavita. So, but yeah, like you said, the fifties teams weren't really that bad. And even maybe the early, you know, it's just the early sixties teams and all that. It's just, I think it'd be a great discussion just to see what it was like just talking about really good Indians teams and comparing them to what the ninety five team was and then like maybe the ninety seven team, nineteen ninety nine, I mean, the 2017 team that, you know, the team that got 22 wins in a row, it's, it'll be different. It'll be an interesting conversation for sure just to be able to talk about all these potential good Indians teams and how they stack up compared to how they were at their eras and players and all that stuff. But, um, I mean, Amari, do you have any other thoughts about the 95 team? Anything you want to talk about or, you know, just anything in general? Do you have any, anything else to add for the 95 team? Um, other than I'm hurt that they didn't win, uh, no, I think I'm okay. Um, I think that 95 World Series would have taken off some sting for the Browns leaving. Um, and, of course, just in general, who, I mean, championships are everything. But um, definitely fun to watch when I look back at it because I was less than a year old when they played. Um, so I don't have really, really personal memory of it, but – Definitely, I think, one of the more fun teams to watch for Cleveland teams. Um, and you could see how much they really cared about the city and trying to win a championship and playing for each other and playing for their coaches. Um, really unfortunate that they couldn't win. And then, of course, they get back two years later, but I'm sure there will be another episode on that. But, yeah, heartbreaking Cleveland. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and – we're, we'll probably talk about the 97 team, which will probably just give me a little bit more uh, not so great feelings about how that ended. But like you said, that's another episode for another time. I know Tom would really look forward to talking about that one. But um, do you got any final thoughts on the 95 team, man? You know, just anything in general you want to talk about or want to bring up? Like, you got anything? Yeah, I think that. The 95 Cleveland Indians not winning 
that World Series or any of the 90s Indians teams that couldn't win the World Series, I think that's hampered a guy like Omar Vizquel at the ballot box for the Hall of Fame. I think that he would be a Hall of Famer if it wasn't for that. I think Kenny Lofton would be a Hall of Famer if it wasn't for that. You look at all the teams that those guys were on in the 90s that had a chance to win it. You know, the 94 Indians were in a pennant hunt. The 95 Indians lost a World Series. The 96 Indians got knocked out in the playoffs. The 97 team was one out away. 98 team got beat in the playoffs. 99 team, you know, you look at those teams and they had their chances and they just, I think that's the difference between some of those guys being genuine Hall of Famers and not. It's kind of sad. Yeah, it's it's just crazy to think of how good those teams were in the nineties. Just kind of get one out, and you know, talk about the '07 team and how they fell short on that, and you know, the '16 team, and that's just that's that's an episode I really kind of want to avoid. But we're talking about World Series teams and all of that, and we might eventually do one about the '16 team. You know, that's probably going to hurt a lot because you know, I'm still not over it. I don't know that I'll ever be. If you listen to the last, <laughs> I'm Marty. I know you probably listened to the last episode where me and Tom were like, "No, nah, man, the 16, the 16 World Series hurts a lot more than the 07 ALCS." Oh my god! Yeah, I can't. Yeah. I came. I came and watched Game Seven without you know just being like, literally. Well, I need a beer. So <laughs> they show it so much, and I get it because the Cubs hadn't won in over a hundred years. But literally, whenever it's on, I just. Uh, I just keep going. I can't watch it. It's like it's like nope. Honestly, and that's and I've run into a lot of Cubs fans and stuff like that. I have friends who are Cubs fans. I tell them that there's any team that we had to lose to in that World Series, I'm okay that it's I'm Cubs still not okay because of their long streak. <laughs> okay. I'm not. I'm not mad at nope, the Cubs. Still it's mad. Just, Doesn't it care who it was. It and then and then Kipnis goes and signs <laughs> with them. Yeah, he went home. That's okay. That did thing. Yeah, he did go home. I get it. Like, but like I said, I'm not. It's I'm just. It just really stinks that they never that they didn't win it that year. But I, if it had to be to anyone, which I wish it never did happen, I really can't be mad that it's the Cubs that did it because how long their like I said how long their streak was. If it was to anyone else, yeah, I'd be really upset. I mean, I'm still upset about it, but it is what it is. But in terms of what, I mean, I don't really have any other thoughts on the 95 team. I mean, we've gone on for a good, you know, good while, you know, just talking about how great this team was. And, you know, we had that little, you know, segment break or, you know, that big bomb that dropped from New York Times. And I know, Mari, you retweeted this and shared it with us on Twitter. You know, Jeff Passan, he even tweeted it that, it's legit. It's legit, legit. It's probably going to happen, and we're going to probably know something this week. It could be tomorrow. It could be Wednesday or Friday. So if anything pops up and if we have a chance to come on, we might have to do our second emergency podcast of being like, all right, <laughs> it's officially official. So I guess everyone who's a you know big fan of the show, be on the lookout for a possible emergency podcast with you know, an Indian's name change coming in 2022 because – 
The Indians are going to roll with the Cleveland Indians next year at least. I guess all depends on what 2022 brings, but that will wrap up tonight's show. Amari, thank you so much, man, for coming on tonight. Thank you for being a, our third two-time guest. It was really great talking to you, you know, talking some non-tendered Indians, talking about some, uh, you know, minor league affiliate changes, the 95 team, you know, this big name bomb that got dropped. I mean, I appreciate you coming on, man, you know, taking the time to come with us and, you know, Talk about the Indians, man. Thank you so much for doing that. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, the breaking news was a nice little uh, little wrench in the plans. Um, so that was nice. <laughs> uh, reminiscing on a little heartbreak from the Indians. But, you know, we'll get over it. We're Clevelanders. But, uh, yeah, like I said, thanks for having yeah. me. And uh, hopefully I'll be on again soon. Can't wait to have you back, bro. Oh, Oh yeah, no, definitely for sure, man. We'll we're definitely gonna have you on again, no doubt. We'll, we'll probably have you on a little bit more this off season. We'll definitely try to get you on a lot more during the regular season as well. But you know, you know, drop some links, man. Where people can find you on the socials? Where can they read your blog and all that stuff? And is there anything else in the pipeline? You know, floor is yours, man. You know, pimp some stuff out. Yeah, hopefully more blogs coming soon. My Twitter is my first name amari underscore m17 in my bio you can find a leak tree to all my other accounts my my twitch if anybody likes video games my instagram my blog a list of other uh, articles i've written for two other cleveland-based websites uh so go check it out read it comment drop a like retweet give me suggestions ask me questions anything um i'll consider myself a fun follow i love talking to all types of fans, but especially Cleveland sports fans. And um, trying to get myself off the ground here. Trying to get more well-known. Uh, yeah, so that's that's pretty much it. Yeah, I know for sure, man. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, – hopefully people start checking out your stuff because I've read some of your articles, man. They're pretty good. They're pretty solid. So I definitely – hopefully people do get a chance more to read your stuff because I think it's – I think it's definitely worth a read. Um Tom, where can people find you on the socials and stuff? Uh, I predominantly do my baseball talk on Twitter. So if you're one of these sports sports takes, sports talk with me, uh, you can find me at Mithini, M-E-T-H-E-N-E-Y underscore six. And I look forward to interacting, you know, as always. Um, how about you, Zach? Where can we... Where can we pick you up at? Yeah, you can pick me up on my personal at Rye Tribe 22 That's R-Y-T-R-I-B-E 22. Um, you know, hit me up in a tweet or DM me or, you know, I most I talk about a lot of sports, Browns, Cavs, Columbus Crew, soccer, but everyone knows mainly my main thing is the Indians. So if you want to talk Indians, just hit me up on that. And then you can follow the podcast at Rockin' at the Jake. Pretty simple. Um, you know, just follow us on there. Hit us up with tweets. You know, DM the show if you want to, you know, want your questions answered on the show or anything like that. We would definitely love to hear from you guys. And, you know, go, you know, leave a five-star, you know, rating or review. Because uh, if you do, we might read on the podcast. And we actually got one, um, which is really cool. Uh, this is back on December 3rd, so sorry to this person for getting to it so late. I didn't realize we got one. I don't check our ratings a whole lot. But this is from Furloughed at Home. 
back on the third, five stars. It says, great podcast, great show. I'm not an Indians fan and just wanted to change the pace. Nice work, fellas. So furloughed at home, thank you for your five-star rating and your written review. We are actually up to seven ratings, and they are all five stars. So if you guys drop us some you know, more five-star ratings and leave some reviews, it'll help us with the algorithm to get featured a little bit more and then help us up jump the ranks. So make sure to do that. You know, Subscribe. You know, Follow us on Spotify or wherever major podcast platforms you're on. Um, share with fellow Indians fans because we would love to get more fans, you know, here in the States and abroad. And, you know, if you know someone or if you have your own, you know, podcasting network, you know, hit us up with a DM at our podcast page or hit me up personally. Uh, we'd love to jump on, you know, a podcasting network and, you know, help grow this thing because, you know, we are, you know, 18 episodes in officially, you know, not if you don't count our emergency podcast when the Indians made the playoffs. So we're, you know, we're going 18 weeks strong now of just, pumping out Indians content. So, yeah, just like to keep the train rolling and go from there and, you know, talk some more Indians baseball. But, like I said, that is the end of our show tonight. We will see you guys next time here at Rockin' at the Jake.